been talking on Wednesday nights out of Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus said these words to his disciples. He talks about salt and he said, you are salt into the earth. And he says, the problem if his salt loses its saltiness, then it loses its purpose. It's not good for anything but to be thrown away. And then he uses a different example. He says, you are a light. You are the light of the world. He said that if that a lamp is hidden, it's not, a lamp is not lit so that it can be hidden but under, a, under a bushel basket, but it's made to be put on a hill so that others can draw light from it. We're talking about especially the salt of the world. We're talking about living a separated life and understanding that the purpose of our life, and this is a real purpose of this series we're doing, the purpose of our life is not to blend into the world. Because I'm concerned because I believe that the, that the church has, has, for a number of reasons, has fallen into this trap. And I, I think it goes back to some degree to for about 15, 20 years because of a lot of what we've been hearing teaching about and a lot of what the focus has been is about, you know, who we are in Christ. And that's wonderful. That's very important to understand. It's a foundation for growing and, and stepping out. But we've also found out what the blessings that we have by being in the covenant with God. And, and all those are wonderful and those are true. <clears throat> but if that's all we feed upon and look upon, the focus of all of that is what do we get out of this? And, what, and the problem is when all we're looking at is what we get out of it, we start getting our eyes on who we are and off of who God is and why God's put us here. And then we begin to slip slowly, and this is how this happens, it happens slowly. We begin to slip slowly into thinking and talking, acting and expecting the way the world does. And that's part of Satan's scheme. We spent a good part of the beginning of this year uh, going over the, the uh, course on renewing the mind out of Romans chapter 12. The, the key verses were in Romans chapter 12, where Paul tells us in verse 2 not to be conformed to this world. And yet I believe the church is more conformed to this world than perhaps it's ever been, certainly in my lifetime. We think like the world, we dress like the world, we've developed the world's customs, we, 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 we do the practices of the world. Why do we do that? Well, we want to be accepted, we want to feel a part of things, and there's nothing wrong with being accepted and part of things. The question is, what are you being part of and whose acceptance are you looking for? And the concern I have is that we've lost, we've lost sight of the fact that not only is it okay to be different, we're called to be different. We're not called to be like the world. Now, there's scriptures where Paul says, I've learned to be all things to all men, and we'll look at that a little later on because that's true. But the Paul that said that, he didn't think like the world, he didn't talk like the world, he didn't act like the world. He did some things to meet the world where they were to bring them to where he was. But most of the church isn't going to where the world is to bring the world to them. They don't, can't tell the difference between the world. In most churches, you can't tell the difference between the world. I like the fact that we got a cross up there. I've had a lot of people comment on that. We're going to keep it up there until we get something that's, that's a little different. That, not different, but it's, it's a little different form. Because somebody commented to me a while ago, you know, you walk in here and you can't tell that this is a Christian church. Unless, of course, we have a cross on the front of the church. And that's true of a lot of churches today. A lot of the modern redesigned churches I've been in, they look like just like a theater. And a lot of what's going on there is theatrics, too. You go in there and you can't tell that this is a Christian assembly. And what makes us known as a Christian assembly to the world is that cross. It's the cross because that's what makes us Christians. The cross is what makes the difference. And I know there are many other things that we get by being Christians and we want to learn those things. But Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. 
And I think part of why the church falls into this is we don't understand that not only is it okay to be different, we're called to be different. And therefore, we have to, if you don't have that expectation, you get lulled into the very subtle lie that, well, there's something wrong with us because we're acting different. We're supposed to be different. And so we've looked at that, and we've looked at what that means to be separated. It doesn't mean to be weird. It doesn't mean to be strange. It may be strange in people's eyes, but that's not the purpose of it. It also doesn't mean to be isolated, because to be isolated, you're having no effect on the world. The purpose of salt is to be different. And what Jesus is saying is when the salt is no longer different than the food, it's lost its purpose. And Satan is very subtly trying to take the power of the church and the effectiveness of the church to water it down so that we be becoming more and more like the world. And so if we're going to fulfill our call as a church, if we're going to fulfill our call as individuals, we have to be willing to be different. Because if we're going to be, we're, you and I are called to be like Christ. And Christ stood out. They noticed that he was different. And that his effectiveness was because he was different. So we've been working on this and learning about how do we be different. We've looked about what, what it means to be separated and now we've been looking for a few weeks now at the obstacles, things that, what is it the enemy schemes that he works on to, to try to keep us from being, being the salt of the earth, from being different. And the first thing we looked at, which is really the most, the strongest one, is the love of the world and the things of the world. And John, in the first gospel, in the first letter of John, makes it very clear that you cannot be in love with the world and in love with God. You can't love both. And we see in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus says, you can't love God and, and the things of this world. doesn't mean you can't have the things of this world. It doesn't mean that you can't enjoy them, but that your heart can't have them. The things can't have your heart because and, and, it's an issue of the heart. And then we looked at the, began to look at the second one, and that's the fear of man. They're very closely related. We saw that in Proverbs 29, uh, verse of, in 29, 25, it says the fear of man is a snare. And we talked about why, why is, why are, what the fear of man means. It doesn't mean that I hide from people, though in some cases that is what the fear of man is. It's more the fear of the disapproval. It's more comes from an, a need that's, that is made, built in us by God. God's made us so that we need one another. God has made us so that we need Him. God has made us so that we need approval. We need acceptance. We need value. Those are the three basic things that a human soul, a human person needs in order to be healthy as a, in your personality to grow and mature. And so many people are, are dysfunctional. So many people uh, have, uh, are, are chasing after all the wrong things because they're trying to fill an inner need to be accepted, to be of value, and to be needed, to be important. And so, but we saw that God God designed us so that we would draw, have those needs filled by Him and by relationship with Him, not by artificial things, which is the way all the world has to offer us. And that, that if you are not secure in those things in yourself, then you are vulnerable to that temptation. You're vulnerable to, and that's the main way, way Satan's going to try to get at you, is through your insecurities, through your fears of being rejected by people. And this is a tremendous challenge among young people because it's the peer pressure. And so they may come to church, they may read their Bible, they may have parents that love, and, love God and pray, and yet they spend the rest of their week, and not only in school, but on social media, or anti-social media, I call it, and, and, and you know, 
with all the things that are available to them, having input into them, but basically drawing them to be like everybody else. And so if we don't understand that not only is it okay not to be like everybody else, we're called to not be everybody else. And, 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 and if you do that, what you're going to find happen is, you know, we've told the example out of John chapter 9 where Jesus heals this man who was blind from birth. And then the, the, the religious people, they're the only ones that got upset. The religious people got upset. And, you know, they haul him in before them and want to examine him as who, is, who it is that did this for you. They didn't care that the man was blind and now he can see. They didn't care that he's been set free. They just wanted to know who did it and whether they did it the right way. And somebody was out there doing something without their authority and it was working. And that's the part that threatened him. The part that threatened him is people were, there was power in what Jesus was doing. So they haul him in and they try to get him to deny Christ. They try to get, he didn't even know who Jesus was. All he knew is he said, I just know what he did for me. All I know is I was blind and now I can see. And then he says, you know, he says, oh, you know, maybe you're asking these questions because you want to be a follower too. Then they really got mad at him. And they kicked him out of the synagogue because he wouldn't renounce him. But you know who goes to find him? Jesus. He was willing to stand up among his peers under tremendous pressure to deny Christ. He didn't even know he was, but to deny what he'd done for him. But he couldn't deny what he'd done for him. And he stood up and just declared in front of the authorities, I don't know who he is, I just know this is what he did for me. And at the very threat of being kicked out of the synagogue, but as soon as he was kicked out of the synagogue, who came and found him? Jesus. Because when you take your stand with Him, He always takes His stand with you. Amen. So that's what we've been talking about, about the fear of, of the fear of man. And we've talked about how do you go fill that need? Because you have to get that need filled. And that need's only filled in a relationship with God as your Father and with Jesus. Only they can fill that need. And we spent time about that. Then last week, we looked at some examples of this. And we looked at uh, we, we looked at, um, at at Aaron, Moses' brother, and we saw how he caved into the pressure of the people because he needed their approval more than he needed God's approval. And as a result, the children of Israel fell, and the entire nation fell into sin. We looked at King Saul, and we saw that 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 God had appointed him king when the people asked for a king, and 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 that that. Samuel the prophet was sent in with instructions that he was utterly to destroy, completely destroy the Amalekites, everything and all their possessions. And that under pressure from the people, he kept the best. And under his own weaknesses, he kept the best. And then when Samuel comes, God woke him up in the night to tell him what Saul had done. And he comes to confront Saul. Saul, first of all, denies it. And then when he realizes he's been caught, he begins to negotiate his way out for the minimum damage, damage control. And that's what our politics is full of today. People, people are so focused on protecting their reputation and what other people see them. And that's what Saul was doing. Even to the point when Samuel says, the kingdom's been taken away from you. He says, well, now when we go back to the leaders, please don't let them know this. Cover my image with them. And that as a result, he lost his kingship because he was more concerned with what the people thought of him. He needed the soul. There's another one we didn't go into where, the, where, where Samuel had said, you know, before you go into battle, wait and I'll come and perform the sacrifice for you. What happens is the, the, the preacher was late. I mean, Samuel was late. And so what happens is the soldiers begin to pressure him because the army's out there ready to press in on him. And they're saying, we've got to do something. 
Anytime you get this pressure on you, you've got to do something, you know that's not God. Satan works through pressure. God draws. He leads, and very often Satan puts pressure on you, and he puts that pressure on your flesh. Yeah, if you have to do something, because almost always when you do something because you have to do it, you're going to make a mistake. Almost always you're going to make a mistake. So I just, I, I dig my heels in when I get pressured. And I just, just dig my heels in and say, you know, if I'm going to be wrong, I'm going to be wrong doing nothing. <laughs> but I had a good teacher. And it was, it was our, the, it, the, the founder of the school that Pastor Ray and I went to and Anita went to and Monica went to and some others here went to. It was Brother Hagen. He had this rule. He said, I'd rather be a little bit behind God and have to catch up than ahead of God and have to clean up. He didn't make very many mistakes. All right. So, so, but Saul gives in to the pressure, and of course, as soon as he gives in, Samuel shows up. He says, what have you done? And his answer was, well, the soldiers, in other words, the soldiers pressured me, and they were about to leave. And so what Saul was revealing is in his mind, he needed the soldiers more than he needed God. His trust was in the men. His trust was in the soldiers, not in the God who had appointed him. And that's a vivid lesson for us. We also looked in Numbers 13, and we saw that the children of Israel did that when they, were, when they went, sent the spies into the wilderness and came back with the evil report. What we're going to look at now is, all right, let's, you know, you've, we've got to, it's nice to talk about the fear of man, but we've got to be honest about where we are. Because most of us, to some degree or other, are still too concerned about what people think of us and not concerned enough about what God thinks of us. So here's the question. Let's be honest with ourselves. That's where many of us are. We're, we don't want to open our mouth and witness to somebody at work. We don't, want to, we don't want to stand for the Lord. We want to come here and lift our hands and be bold. But out there, we tend to be shy and timid and hold back. Why? Because we're more afraid of what they think of us than what God thinks of us. So what do we do? What's the answer? Well, I've got good news for you. The Bible has a prescription. The Bible has a prescription for this malady called the fear of man. And understand, don't minimize it because the Bible says it's a snare. It's a snare that it's like it's as if Satan has a collar around you somewhere, your neck or your feet, so that you just get going somewhere with God and you get to a point where you're just starting to get somewhere and he lets you think you're going somewhere and he pulls it. Those of you who have been in school of ministry, remember we had a little dog named Mandy and a little miniature poodle. And, and we used to, we have a, there's a place in Maine we go to, a big beach. And I remember one time we took her up there and, and uh, we were all down on the beach and I decided to take the dog down to the beach. And, and Mandy at that point wasn't disciplined the way I had to train her later on. So I had to have a leash on her. And we we're supposed to have one anyway. But I had a rope. I didn't have a leash. I don't know. It must have been 50 feet long. You know, because I wanted to give her a chance to run and play, but I still wanted to have control. And so we're out there one time, and we're just sitting on the beach, you know, we're enjoying ourselves, and she's wandering around, looking around, sniffing at things. And somebody came down the beach on a horse, and Mandy took off after the horse. Mandy didn't remember that she was on a rope, and she could run fast. She took off at a full sprint after this, and I'm just standing there holding the rope because I'm not going to let her run, catch that, try to catch that horse. And she gets to the end of that, and all of a sudden her legs go out behind her. She goes up in the air and comes down on the sand and gets up and shakes herself off. And that's what happens to us sometimes. We get running after God, running after the things of God, but there's a snare in our life somewhere, and Satan has the other end of that rope. 
And you get running and running and running. We think, oh, I'm finally getting somewhere. And just about to think you get your hope, you're getting somewhere, he goes, boom, like that. And whatever that fear is, whatever that snare is, he jerks it. Your legs come out from underneath you, and you come down shaking. Where am I? I don't know what's going on. In many cases, it has to do with the fear of man. And almost always, at the root of it, is fear somewhere. Is fear somewhere. So what's the answer? God has an answer. God always has an answer. So turn with me. We've looked in Proverbs 29 to find out what the problem is. Let's go to Proverbs 14. Problem. Proverbs. (laughs) Proverbs 14. And we're going to see an answer. And it may not be an answer that makes sense to you right away. And there's something in my spirit. I'm just going to believe the Holy Spirit to get across to us tonight. Proverbs 14, verse 26. The fear of the Lord is a strong confidence. In the fear of the Lord, there is a strong confidence, and His children will have a place of refuge. In the fear of the Lord, there is, a, there is strong confidence and his, his children will have a place of refuge. Verse 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. So the answer to the fear of man is the fear of the Lord. The answer to the fear of man is the fear of the Lord. So we're going to begin to talk about the fear of the Lord, right? You know, that doesn't sound like much of an answer right away because I'm either going to be a fear of man or, or afraid of the Lord. And I, and I guess there's some men I'd rather be afraid of than the Lord. But that's what we need to understand what the fear of the Lord is. To do that, there's a lot of things we could do. But turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Now, how you hear this, how you hear this is going to be filtered and determined by factors of how you grew up. Every one of us forms an image of what God is like. And that image determines what you can receive about God and what you will reject about Him. We talked a little bit about that when we studied Renewing the Mind we learn that the mind is a gate that determines what can get down in your spirit as well as what can come up out of your spirit that you can act out and speak out. We looked in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 where Paul talks about casting down imaginations. And the word imaginations there is a word that means reasonings that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. Those reasonings are preconceived ideas or attitudes about God that affect our knowledge of Him. So if you were raised in a home where you had a father and a mother, but especially a father who was angry or, or, or strong, and not just strong, but angry or stern, and, and, and may have even abused you, or, or whether it was physically, it may have been, if it wasn't that, it may have been verbally, or they just may have been cold. The image that you have of God starts out with the image that you have built into you of your parents and especially your father. That's the way God designed it. God designed us, and this is why we talked about several weeks ago, God designed us children to be born into a family where you have a father and mother who are in covenant relationship with God and a covenant relationship with each other. 
where the, where the rule in that home is love and worship and honor of God and of each other. And out of that covenant atmosphere, children grow up feeling loved and accepted. And you've got parents that, that will raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The nurture, on the one hand, the nurturing, the caring, the, the, the building into them of those three basic ingredients of acceptance, of a value, and of security, building those things in them. For as a child, and I could go on and on and teach you the, the way God had designed this for this to happen. The nurture of the Lord. But there's also the other side of it, the admonition of the Lord, the correction of the Lord. And so there's, there's a, there's a, there's a, there, your image of God is formed, starts out being formed by your parents. You say, but I didn't have a father. That forms an image of God. Somehow, whatever your parents did with you, the way they related to you, whether they were there or not there, whatever it was, it built into you the seeds, the beginning seeds of the image of God because God's plan is a child that's raised in a healthy home that loves each other and loves God and loves the children. It's an easy transfer as they begin to mature to transfer that right over to a heavenly father that they cannot see because they've developed that with a parent's that they can see. But unfortunately, and nowadays, that's a rare situation. Most of us have been raised in families that did not have that kind of atmosphere. And it affects us. So when we learn about God and we read scriptures about who God is and what God's like, your mind is going to filter out the part of it that, that, you don't, that, that, that you don't want to see or you don't want to face or you don't want to affect. I'm sure many of you have been to a 3D movie. And, and what they, but in order to see the 3D, you have to wear 3D glasses. And those glasses are designed in such a way as to f your left eye filters out one color and your right eye filters out another color because if you take the glasses off, you'll see there's double images there. And those double images are of, the, of one color and another color outlined in it. And what happens is with the, the, with the color filter, that eye can't see that color. And so your eye are seeing two different angles, even as one flat screen. Well, that's how you see things normally. You're looking at me through eyes that are seeing me from two slightly different angles, and that gives you the depth of field. So the filter, your, uh, that, those colored lenses filter out that particular kind of light so that it doesn't get into your eye. That's what happens when we read the Bible about what God's like. Your mind filters out the parts that it has trouble accepting, most likely because of the way you were raised. Now I say that because what we're going to learn is the fear of the Lord involves two different aspects of God that sound very different from each other, but they bring the balance of who God is really like. And I'm sharing with this to you because I've had to learn this the hard way because as the way I was raised, there's one aspect of God that's been hard for me to grasp, to let in, and to really receive. And the result is I get, I, but I understand this, I can get a one-sided view of God. And I'm sure there are many of you out there that have done that. You may not realize you've done that, but you've done that. So we begin to talk about these two sides of God. You may find that one of these is more easily easier, is more easier for you to accept than the other, but they're both real. And that's the area where you need to renew your mind because that's what Paul says, that, that we're, changed, tra we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. So here's what we're going to look at. Acts, Acts chapter 9. Very simple verse. Verse 31. 
and the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And how did they do that? They were walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They were multiplied. Here you see two basic aspects of the way God deals with us. The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It's similar to what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6, talking to fathers. He says, you don't, don't, don't be hard on your kids because they'll become discouraged. Instead, you are to raise them up in the nurture, the King James, I think, says the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. The comforting, the assuring, the, 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 it's kind of like mom and dad. You know, typically, dad's the law. You know, the kids have got to learn some things so that when they grow up and they get out in the world, they know how to deal with the things of the world. And mom wants to kiss all their boo-boos and make sure that they're content and they're happy and everybody's fine. And so mom and dad can have a little tension there because an issue comes up where discipline may be required and mom, and mom sees it one way and dad sees it the other way. And if you don't learn how to come into an agreement, what will happen is mom, dad will do one and mom will do the other and they'll undermine each other and the kids will figure this out very quickly. And they'll learn how to play one against the other. The problem is we try to do that with God and you may be able to, your parents, kids may have been able to get away with you, but you cannot get away with, with God and you don't want to. So there's two sides to this. We're going to start with the comfort side. So turn with me to Romans chapter 8. But they both have the same principle underneath them. We're talking about getting delivered from the fear of man. Romans chapter 8. Start at verse 28. Probably one of the two, two or three most popular verses in Romans, especially in Romans 8. I see this, hear this quoted so often. Verse 28. And we know, this is Paul writing that, that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, most people only quote the first half of that. For we know, I don't know whatever's happened in my life, but we know this, the Bible says, all things happen for our good. That's not what it says. It says, we know that all things work together. All things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, if you look back behind that, you'll see a context that he's talking in because he's been talking all along about law and grace. He's talked about the fact that in verse chapter 3 that we're saved by grace, by faith, and not by works. Chapter 4 talks about what that faith is. Chapter 5 talks about the grace that we, we now stand in this grace through Jesus Christ and talks a little bit about what that grace is. Chapter 6 says, yeah, it's grace, but we don't ever presume upon that grace. Just because we're saved by grace and God's lavished His grace upon us, don't presume upon that and think, well, where sin abounds, grace does abound much more, so therefore let's sin more so grace can abound even more. That's presuming on the grace of God. He says, you don't know who you are. 
You've been saved by grace, but you've been saved by grace so that you can learn to live, you've been, so you can conquer the sin, so that sin doesn't have dominion over you anymore. That's what the grace did. It gave you the power to overcome the sin, not just to live in it, but to overcome it. Chapter 7 talks about his struggle with that. Anybody ever, I won't ask for a show of hands, struggle with sin. Because just because you're a child of God doesn't mean the devil goes away and doesn't mean your flesh just lays down and does whatever you want it to do. So Paul talks in there about, especially from verse 14 on, the second half of verse 14 on, talks about his struggle, the very things I want to do, I don't do, and the very things I don't want to do are the very things I want to do. Anybody ever gone through that experience before? And he comes to the end and says, what am I going to do with this body of flesh? That's my problem. Who's going to deliver me? Well, the answer is in the end of that chapter. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. So chapter 8 starts out, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death because the law, the law depended on my flesh to be righteous and my flesh isn't strong enough to do that. So the law didn't fail because the failure was because the law depended on my flesh and my flesh was too weak to stand up and do what the law said to do. And what he says, because, therefore God did what my flesh could not do, sending his own son in the likeness of flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in my, his flesh. So basically Christ did for us what we could not do under the law. He paid the penalty for that. We talked on Sunday about that with the mercy seat. He paid the penalty for that, so we're free from the power of that sin. We're free from the guilt of that sin so that we can, we're now don't have to act in accordance with that sin. So the whole message of Romans 8, or really Romans up to this point, is the grace of God, is that God's done for us through the Spirit what we cannot do for ourselves. So he's been working on our behalf to do good for us. Then right before that, he talks about prayer. He says, we don't know what to pray as we ought. Why? Because the issues we're dealing with are in the spirit realm, and you can't see the problems in the spirit realm. So you don't know when something comes into your life, or whether it's sickness. And you notice sometimes Jesus laid hands on people that were sick. Sometimes he cast out devils. Sometimes he told them to go do something. He didn't do the same thing with everybody. Why? Because there wasn't the same cause of the sickness in each situation. And Jesus was sensitive enough to the Spirit in him to know what the problem was so he knew what to do. He knew the answer in each case. But we do, we see a problem, we just launch into prayer, start throwing scriptures from every scripture we know at a situation without knowing what the problem is. Amen? All right, might as well be honest, that's what we do. All of us, including me, I'm tempted to do that too. Just throw scriptures at it, you know, hopefully something sticks on the wall. But there's no faith in that. They do this wonderful cataract surgery now with lasers. They go open, they do surgery where they open the cornea of your eye, roll it back, clean it out, and sew it up. Yeah, right. But they do that. They don't do it with a blast of a flashlight. They have a very fine precision laser beam that goes exactly where they want to target that. It's incredible. They can fuse your, refute, connect your retina in the back of your eye with a light beam. They better know what they're doing if they're going to stick a light in my eye doing like that. 
Amazing what they can do. But they don't just shoot laser beams everywhere. They know exactly what the target is to aim that laser at. They know just where to go. Why? Because they've examined you and they know ahead of time. And so what Paul's saying is there's power in prayer, but only if it is targeted the right way. Now, we, got a, we get prayer requests on Tuesday night. and I, I, I don't, If it was you, please. I'm not, I don't want to embarrass you. But one of them came to I picked it up and I said, this is exactly why so many prayers aren't answered. Because the prayer request literally said, please pray for everything. How can God answer that? How can you know if God's answered that? Our prayers need to be as specific as we can make them. And what the Apostle Paul is saying before this is the problem we have in being specific and targeted in our prayer is often we don't know, it says in the Greek, literally, the what to pray. But the good news is, it says, but God's provided help for us. Because the Spirit who He's put in us helps us. The word help there is a word that literally means to take hold together against a situation. Not to do it in our place, but to come in and join together with us against it. Not only that, but the Spirit provides power when it comes to praying in the Spirit realm. The verse right before this then gives the answer. Likewise, the Spirit helps our weakness, for we don't know what to pray because, as we ought, verse 26, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. And He who searches the hearts, that's God, knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. He's talking about our prayer life, and God has set this up because He knows us. He knows we're walking around spiritually blind. He knows we can't see in the spirit realm to know what the real issue is, but God's taking care of that. So what God has put in us is His own spirit who does know what the problem is. So when we begin to pray, He'll take hold together, with, especially if you're exercising faith in this scripture, He'll take hold together with you and begin to pray out the will of God in that situation. But not only that, look at verse 27. Now He, who's, this is God now, the other, this is the one you're praying to. Remember, we do talk to somebody when we're praying. We don't just throw prayers out. Prayer is communicating with somebody at the other end like picking up your phone and you don't bot, dial, you know, call a number, you just start talking to the phone because you want to talk on the phone. That's senseless. You want to make sure there's somebody on the other. I was talking to somebody today and I'm going on and on. I was, wait a minute, we lost our connection somewhere. And so I'm going merrily talking away and I'm realizing I didn't get any kind of response. And Hello, are you there? Well, I wasn't going to keep on talking. So I went back and I redialed, I recalled the number because I want to make sure there's somebody on the other end listening. So you understand when we're praying, the object is to get through to the one on the other end. Well, what 27 says, he's listening. Look at this. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. So on the other end of the prayer that the Spirit of God is perfectly offering up to God, you have God who's listening to the searching the depths of the Spirit to find out what He's trying to say. He's trying to straighten out what you're praying because He wants to straighten it out so that it's the perfect will of God. He's making an adjustment in your prayers. And on the other end, God's listening perfectly in. That's a great example of the verse we're looking at. We know that all things work together. So God's working in us. 
to make up for our, in, our infirmities, the things we can't do. That was the beginning talked about. We couldn't save ourselves under the law. We couldn't keep of the law. Why? Because of the infirmity of our flesh, the weakness of our flesh. So what we couldn't do, God helped us by doing it for us so now we can get control of it. In the same way when we pray, we can't pray effectively because we don't know what to pray, but God's working together with us on that because He's put His Spirit in us who does know what to pray, can straighten our prayers out, and God can commune with Him because they speak the same language. So now he's going on to other subjects. He says, not only can, does God work together for good to save us, not only does God work together for good to... to, to I never taught this before this way. Work together for good to, to, for our prayers, but he's working together good for all things. For those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. So now he's going to talk about those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew... He predestined, don't get hung up with that word, that just means planned ahead of time. So for whom he foreknew, he planned ahead of time for them to be conformed to the image of his son. That's God's goal. That his son, he may be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined or planned for, these he called. So that's how I know I've been led in it, because he called me. I don't mean as a pastor. He called me into the kingdom. I didn't call myself. In fact, not he called. He had to yell at me over and over again. He had to chase me down, track me down, woo me, corner me. He worked on me outside, inside. And I'm not the only one in this room he had to do that with either. That's proof he's talking about you. He called you. You're here because he called you. But notice, the ones he called, he's planned ahead of time that they be conformed to the image of his son. So that his son is only the firstborn among many brethren. So he's talking about turning us in to his sons and daughters. Verse 30 again. Whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified, made right in his sight. And whom he justified, he glorified. Now, Paul, looking back at what all that God has done, working for us, working in us, making up for our infirmities, he says, in in light of all that, verse 11, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us. Let's stop. Let's talk about the word for, F-O-R for a minute. Not F-O-U-R, F-O-R. That word can mean a little bit, and it can mean a lot. So in the World Series or in the Super Bowl, it's not uncommon for somebody to say, who are you for? Well, if it's teams that aren't around here, I'm pretty much indifferent to it. But I may say, hey, I'm for this team. That's not exactly a passionate endorsement. Yeah, if I've got to choose between the two, I'll take that team. Now, if it involves one of the teams that I'm a fan of, then I'm for it with a lot more desire. On the other hand, I'm also for my wife. I better not be for my wife in the same way I'm for the Patriots or for some other team on the West Coast. I better be for her. For means committed to, passionate about caring about. I better 
That four may better mean a lot more when it applies to my wife than it does to the Red Sox or the Patriots or some other team. So when it says God's for us, we often hear that, well, that's nice, God's for me. That's nice, God's for me. But we often hear of it just like he's for the Patriots or the Giants or something. You know, he kind of roots for us. He's, he likes us. But Paul's just gone back and talked about through all of this chapter what God's done for us as evidence of how for you he is. Now stay with me because we're still talking about the fear of God and the fear of man. All right. So here's Paul's result of having looked at this and said, look what God has done. Look what God has done for us. Well, if God is for us, look what he says. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can possibly be against us? Now remember, we're talking about the fear of man and the fear of God. The concern with the fear of man is if I say something or do something that, they don't, that doesn't look like them or is accepted to them, then they may not like me. They may not accept me. They may not be for me. Because the reason, reason that we want their approval is so that they're for us. They're on our side. They accept us. They like us. And Paul's saying, God's for you. Look how much God's for you. If God's for you, who can possibly be against you? Well, obviously, everybody can be against you, but how can that possibly count when you look at what, who God is and what He's done for you? You understand that those football players and baseball players that you're for, in almost all cases, don't know who you are? Don't care who you are? And you pay them. They don't care about you. They'll go join another team if they pay them more money. That's how for you they are. But oh, you get people out there, I mean, they act like idiots. Freezing cold weather, no shirt on, painted their bodies with the color of the team. Adults! Because they're for the Patriots, they're for the Packers, they're for them. Well, the Patriots and the Packers aren't for them back. If God's for us, what does it matter what anybody else thinks? Well, he goes on and he, he, he expels this out. If God's for us, who can possibly be against us is what he's saying there. And he talks again about who didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not together with him freely give us all things? In other words, this God who didn't hold back his most precious possession, that means he's not holding anything back from us. Talk about being for you. Talk about being for you. The people we're so afraid of, are they giving you everything they have? No, because the moment you don't do what they like, they turn against you. That's how for you they are. 
Actually, they're not for you. They're for themselves. And the reason they're for you is because you reinforce them. I'm going to go through that again because that sounds confusing. I never said that before. A lot of fours here, aren't there? When we're seeking for, searching for people to be for us, they're really not for you. Because the moment you don't act like them, they'll turn against you, which means they really weren't for you. The only reason they paid attention to you is because you were like them and you made them feel better about being where they were. The reason they now won't like you is you make them feel uncomfortable about being where they are. So they've never been for you at all. I never saw that before. But Satan's a deceiver. He, tr- he tricks us with deceptions, things that look like one thing, but they're really not. But God is for you. And the proof of it is what he paid for and what he's been willing to give before you ever were willing to accept him. Because he did all this before you ever came and said yes to him. In fact, he's the only one that's really for you. Well, he goes on and explains it even more. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? That's us. Not God. He's the one that justifies. In other words, if God's the one that's justified you, why is he going to bring a charge against you? Goes on to the... By the way, there's only two that legally have a right to bring a charge against you. One is God the Father. We're going to talk about the second one now, verse 34. Who is he who condemns you? Now stop there. What's the first verse said? There is now therefore no what? Condemnation. So the only one legally entitled to bring a charge against you and the only other one legally entitled to condemn you is God the Father and God the Son. So Paul's saying, well, God the Father is entitled to condemn us, but why would He do it? He's the one that's justified you. The only other one left who has a legal right to condemn you is Christ Jesus, because they're the only two perfect ones. Well, why would He condemn you? Because He goes on and said, He died for you. The justification you had, He paid for. Not only did He die for you, He's also been raised from the dead, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, God, and he licks intercession for you. So why would he condemn you? Well, there's nobody else left. And now he gets into this. Because remember, this is the side of God, of, the, of being under God's authority, being under God's guidance, being under God's submitted to him is because of what you get from it. And this is what you get. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, he's going to talk about some messy stuff here. Stuff that can happen to us. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, that's when the people don't like you. That's when they're no longer for you. Or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long, we're counted as sheep to the slaughter. Verse 37. Yes, but in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded... I love that word. I've just meditated on that word from time. That means Paul's not writing this as theology. Paul's not writing this because he's had a good idea. Paul's not even writing this because God spoke it to him. Paul's writing this because through years of going through persecution and 
and despair and nakedness and peril. Through all the stuff he's writing about here, Paul's gone through that stuff. And he's learned something having gone through it. Having gone through all of this, the one thing I know is I'm persuaded of something that you can't ever talk me out of. And what is he persuaded of? That neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers death nor life what's the worst that can happen to you? You die. Paul said it doesn't matter. Angels, principalities, or powers, those are spiritual forces. Angels on the one hand, demonic forces on the other. So it doesn't matter whether it's angels or demons. Nor things present, what you're going through now, or things to come, the future. A lot of people are afraid of the future. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other, look at this, created thing. And what is he persuaded of? None of those things. Whatever can happen to you, whatever you can go through, the very worst the devil can throw at you, I'm persuaded that none of it shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God which has been given to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. That's your security. What's your value? That God's chosen you justified you, called you, and is conforming you, working inside of you to change the outside of you into the inside which has already been made into his child. Wow. What does it matter what anybody thinks? Because they'll all fail you at some point, especially when you stand up for something they don't agree with. But there's one whether you're weak or strong, whether you're faithful or faithless, there's one who's committed to you and not just committed to you with words but has proven his commitment to you by paying the most precious price that can be paid and then saying, if there's anything else you need, why would I hold that back from you? When we have one like that who's on our side, and not only on our side, my mother, there's this old saying my mother used to say, and I'm sure some of you had it, you know, sticks and stones can break your bones, but names can never hurt me. Because there was a bully in our neighborhood who used to call me names. And I come home crying to my mother, little boy. She said, sticks and stones can break your bones, but names can never hurt you. That's not what I wanted to hear. So one day I got the courage to go up to tell him that, so he picked up a rock and threw it at me. <laughs> I don't know why I got off on that. <laughs> well, Paul's saying, even if they throw sticks and stones at you, what can they do to you? What can they do to you when God loves you, is that committed to you, and nothing can change it? And Paul says, I, I know this not because it's a good idea. I know it not because God spoke. I know it because I've proven it out. I've been through all of this. I know that no matter what happens, no matter who likes me, doesn't like me, I know there's one who's so committed to me that whatever it is that I've needed, he's been willing to pay before I ever responded to him. Why would I fear man? when I've got one who's on my side, not only 
he's on my side, but just think of what he can do. The bullies can throw rocks at you. The world can call you names. They could put us in jail. They can beat us. They could even kill us. But they can't do anything to you compared against you compared to what God can do for you. Because remember who he is. Remember who's on your side. Remember what he can do. Remember whatever need you're going through right now. Not God is not in it with you, but what he's able to do if we'll just turn and put our trust in him. But the key is this. The fear of the Lord is coming under his authority. And under his authority is this refuge we saw in Psalm, 20, in Psalm 17, 14. Under his authority, Psalm 91 says, is the secret place is the place of protection and the place of provision. And that authority is coming underneath him as we talked about last time. It's being willing not to be out there on my own doing my own thing, but is when, and this is what we're going to see. This is why the fear of the Lord is protection because it's coming underneath him. You can't be underneath him if you're out there doing your own thing. If you're out trying to live your life for your own purposes and getting your own way, it's only as we submit to him and his ways and his purposes, but that scares us because we're afraid to lose our independence. We're afraid of what's going to happen to us, but that's the place of refuge. That's the place of peace. That's the place of protection. That's the place of provision. And that's what we're going to begin to look at next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Words cannot express, Lord, what your word has taught us tonight. I pray tonight, Father, that the words that we've heard will begin to penetrate our hearts at a deeper level and become more real to us by revelation. And we'll begin to have a revelation by your spirit. Your word says that our eyes have not seen, our ears have not heard, and it's not entered into our hearts all that God has done for those who love him. But your spirit's been given to us to reveal these things. I ask you for the spirit of God to begin to take these verses and make them alive to us right in our life where we live right now, with the situations that we're facing right now, to realize just how much our God is for us, just how much our God is working on our behalf, just how much our God cares for us and loves us, and that no matter what anybody can do, no matter what the devil can do, it can't separate us from that love. So we are secure, we are safe, we are valuable, we are loved. Father, may your spirit make that so real to us because your word says that when that becomes perfect love, casts out fear. And we will have no fear anymore. We thank you for that grace by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.